0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: Since the holiday season is upon us, it's time to talk about an action classic that many consider to be a Christmas classic. That's
2: right, we're talking about Die Hard. The movie turned 35 this year, so what better time to talk about this influential film starring Bruce Willis?
1: We will never get tired of Hans Gruber versus John McClane, the real Clash of the Titans. So that's why we're bringing you this Encore episode recorded back in 2018. I'm Linda Holmes.
2: And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we are revisiting our conversation about Die Hard.
0: From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.
2: Hey, this is Stephen Thompson. Before we get back to the show, a quick word. We know it's important to you to have us here every week, helping you figure out what to watch, read, or listen to. Your financial support makes us happy every week. It's what makes it possible for NPR to cover news and pop culture and give you shows like this one. Even though what you listen to from NPR is free, it's not free to produce, which is why we want to say a big thank you to our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus supporters and anyone listening who currently donates to public Media. If that's not you, today is Giving Tuesday, and an international day of giving is the perfect reason to sign up for Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus. You'll be supporting the show, and you'll hear each episode without messages from sponsors. Or you can make a tax-deductible donation to your local NPR station. You have choices. What really matters is that you are part of the community of listeners who keep NPR going. We can't do it without you. You can give today at donate.npr. Npr.org/happy or explore NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. Thank you.
1: Welcome back. You just met NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Also with us is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn Hey, Linda. And maybe the least surprising fourth <laughs> chair announcement in our little show's history. In our fourth chair this week, who else but our friend, our ambassador of punching, and a diehard Aficionado. A diehard, diehard. A diehard, diehard. Chris Klimek. Hi, Chris. Hi, Linda.
3: Fists with your toes. Fists with, Fists your, with toes. your toes. Fists the with your toes. The secret to surviving podcast.
1: It's true. It's absolutely true. And we should say, Chris does have, and we're going to try to get him not to recite the entire thing, a long, dare I say, manifesto on the topic of diehard and its many sequels. That is available on npr.org. Oh yes, and uh, and you, Chris. Oh, you <laughs> the mean the one that been I just hailed as in my...
3: punishingly long? <laughs>
1: <laughs> hailed as punishingly but long, but
3: it's it's there for you.
1: It absolutely is, and we will throw out a link to that. Is it up um, to date?
3: Does it have all of them? I wrote it before a good day to die hard right. had come out, so it is eighty percent up to date. And I still have not seen a good day to die hard because my heart just couldn't take yeah, it. Yeah, so mm.
1: it's up to date. Telling up to the, the... date of two thousand seven. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to start with not our Die Hard, Die Hard, but with my buddy Stephen Thompson. Stephen, have you refreshed your memory about Die Hard recently?
2: Yeah, I watched it last night. I didn't want to go into this podcast only having seen it 35 times. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I went through the punishing homework of sitting through it yet again. I love this movie. Mm -hmm. I think when you ask the question of why... Die Hard. Why mm-hmm. does Die Hard endure for 30 years?
3: And Which
1: s- some people may be asking right now. <laughs> Why Die Hard? Yeah, I, I
3: want to say I thought I was being punked when you guys yeah. invited me here for this. <laughs> I was like, this I is a, a, prank. You, yeah, you a thought, surprise party or you my we organs were, are being harvested. Yeah, or Yeah, you
2: <laughs> thought something. we were luring here you yep. here to, to take your money or something. Uh-huh. But what makes Die Hard endure in ways that other action movies of the 80s haven't, I think part of it is the sense of containment. The fact that this movie is almost entirely situated within one building, and that building represents a puzzle. How does one shoeless man, minimally armed, take down a very heavily financed uh, network of apparent terrorists who are trying to rob the Nakatomi Plaza? But everything is contained to that building. And John McClane, as played by Bruce Willis, he's not Superman. He does not have powers. He does not have a massive arsenal. He does not have an army he is one guy and if you're watching this movie you can almost imagine yourself being put in a position where you know where you could be heroic the way he is not me personally but a strong person <laughs> you, like, you, you could pull the fire alarm. I, would could I could handle the fire alarm um, and and i think that that sense of relatability is so key to this film there are stunts in this movie there are Holy bleep moments! There are things that are very unlikely.
1: (laughs) A little, yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm.
2: But at the same time, it manages to maintain this weird sense of plausibility because it's so contained in ways that I think its sequels aren't, and in ways that I think so many of the action movies that surrounded it in the '80s were not.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, you know, you mention John McClane as an ordinary dude. It's important, I think, to realize that at the time that this movie came out, what he was mostly famous for was moonlighting. Mm-hmm. So right. what he was mostly doing was a kind of a wisecracking, suit-wearing yeah. detective guy and the idea of casting him in this.
3: And still shooting moonlighting during the day yeah, when he was shooting Die Hard at night. So yeah. part of why McLean looks so tired in this movie might be because Bruce <laughs> Willis was was shooting like 20 hours a day. Yeah. Well, he was
2: also busy as an enormously successful rock star. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Sure.
3: yeah. Uh, the return of – I don't remember Bruno's initial arrival. No, I time. Time. <laughs> no, Cuts Bruce Willis. Yeah.
1: All right. So, Glenn, when we were talking about covering this, you told us that you had seen Die Hard once.
4: Yeah. Well, technically, it's hard to calculate because I was a movie usher at the Southampton Four Cinema on Hill Street in uh, Southampton, New York, when this film came out. And uh-huh. when you're an usher, when you ush with the uh, skill that I did, you see a lot of movies in bits and pieces. You learn to know when the good bits are and you go in and see those and then you go to some other theater. I can tell you that I went into this film, for example, at minute 25 and left at minute 32. I went back in again at minute 40 and left at 46 because those and many others are the Hans Gruber parts, uh-huh. the Hans Rickman parts. And when I would go into the theater at any other time, I'd see a bunch of guys running around shooting each other with machine guns and think, eh, it's not for me. Yeah. And that persisted until, a, you know, a couple years ago when I watched it for the first time all the way through. And last night when I did it again to refresh my memory. And my theory, and again, I like this film. I don't love it. I love... It in chunks. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, love, I love the Hans Gruber chunks. My theory is that this posited a kind of action hero masculinity that we hadn't seen before. So you have Bruce Willis, right? He is when we meet him, a smirking jerk, condescends to everybody, uh-huh. but he's afraid of flying. He is as you mentioned, Stephen, he's got a machine gun, but he's barefoot. And he makes those fists out of his toes. Let's let's remember, I just realized this last night in a carpeted bathroom. Which is a public health nightmare. I mean, that is just the grossest thing. What were we thinking? Uh So think about the musculature that he had back then, which was very impressive for the time, but would not hold a candle to what we think of as action stars today. No, for sure no. And, you know, his body gets a lot better in the long shots when we're seeing him from behind. Uh (laughs) But he's still, he's got an impressive for the time uh, musculature. That now we would consider it kind of a dad bod.
1: Definitely not as jacked as cheaty in The Good Place. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely.
4: That's the thing. He's less jacked than a philosopher.
2: Yeah.
4: <laughs> uh, I think when we we were in the era of Rambo, who gets name checked in the film, and yet he is this more vulnerable guy who will... Act like a jerk to his wife, but then castigate himself for it in the next scene. Right. This is all very important and I think at the time was kind of revolutionary.
1: Yeah. And I always say that one of the reasons why I like it so much, and it's interesting that fists With Your Toes has come up a few times, that what I like about it so much is how tightly built it is. And if you listen to this show, you've, you may have heard me say this before, but everything that happens in Die Hard is either set up or payoff. Everything is in there for a reason. So, for example, when you see the little thing where the guy on the airplane says, bare feet and make fists with your toes. The
2: real villain of this movie. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. But there's a reason why that conversation about fists with your toes is in there. And it's to get him barefoot because it creates this vulnerability, which is then exploited when they eventually shoot out the glass and he winds up having to kind of run through the glass. And... When Bruce Willis kills the first guy that he kills, they realize that your mind would think, why wouldn't he just take that guy's shoes? So they throw in a little line where he says, got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister mm-hmm. so that he can remain barefoot, barefoot. without you thinking he would just take the guy's shoes. There,
2: there's also in that airplane scene, you are immediately establishing this is a tough guy who is afraid of flying. Of course. Who is, has a general sense of unease about Los Angeles. In, in the Who's...
3: second shot of the movie, which is a close-up of his fist with the death grip on the armrest. Right. Mm-hmm. There's also character work being done yes. in that scene.
1: And I think that's what makes it efficient, is that a lot of the time, a thing that is a character beat is also setting up a specific thing that's going to happen later. You could say exactly the same thing about him getting to Nakaton plaza talking to his wife and learning that a she's going by her maiden name which is genero rather than her married name that is a character conversation between the two of them as is the moment when she gets frustrated and puts the family picture down yep. on its face in the office both of those things are critical for the story to unfold as it does because otherwise hans gruber would immediately know that once he finds out who john McClane is would immediately know that she was John McLean's wife or might know that she was. So the fact that she's going by Gennaro, on the one hand, gives them something to be fighting about, but also is critical to the plot going forward as it does. And she also has to put that family picture down because, you know, and it sets up that reveal of the family picture. Now, Chris, (laughs) you are sitting on your hands. We're just filibustering to keep Chris You've been so good. We're getting the easy stuff out of the way. But you, as a boom, 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 punching expert, what do you think it is about Die Hard?
3: Okay, so I I think this is the reason why I am am so nitpicky, borderline intolerant about some of the sillier action films that I've discussed on the show, like Skyscraper, right? Mm -hmm. Because Die Hard is probably the movie I've seen the greatest number of times. Mm -hmm. And because it has this Swiss watch precision to it, that's where my expectations are set. Now, the thing is... That seeming precision is the result of so many happy accidents, or if I'm going to say it in Alan Rickman speak, there was a serendipity that invaded this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stuff like uh, McLean encountering Hans and and him faking an American accent, mm-hmm. so that you get like that. That wasn't in the script originally. They found out you it's know Rickman had the accent. <laughs> like far, my favorite. That scene. is such yeah. a
1: smart scene because you think that McLean has the drop on yep. him. You really think. Oh, this movie's going to end right yeah. in the middle because he's got the <laughs> drop on him.
3: And the stuff about like escaping in the ambulance at the end again, like these were things they were figuring out on the fly. And usually, that is described as a recipe for disaster, right? If we we haven't figured out the ending, we haven't. But they were kind of making this stuff up as as they went. Steven D'Souza, who was you know one of several writers on this, but he's the one who was on the set making these fixes, has been very very candid about this. And this starts with the with the casting, right? This is like the best casting story that. I, I know of where Bruce Willis is only there because all of these more predictable 80s stars, including Burt Reynolds uh, and Richard Gere, had passed on this role. My favorite bit of minutiae is they were re- contractually required to offer it to Frank Sinatra, who wow. was like, uh, <laughs> true, because he had played the character who became John McClane, oh, Joe right. Leland, in uh-huh. The Detective, which uh-huh. is a, a novel that Roderick Thorpe had written, Nothing Lasts Forever. As so
1: a, where does your research, if people are curious about this, where does your research on Die Hard come from? Is it just many years of various?
3: Yeah, it's many years of various. But I mean, um, John McTiernan, director John McTiernan's commentary track is, you know, it is a a film school for your ears. It is is like a Soderbergh level. Yeah, where he's incredibly candid about very specific, minute choices, you know, and things that, that you might only notice on your 34th viewing of of this movie, he
1: talks a lot about setting up shots and triangles and all this. Right, really and cool I, I, stuff. I mean,
3: I I think to, to answer your broader question about why this this movie has endured and is so fondly remembered is I think it is the perfect collision of the '80s, you know, Joel Silver, who had worked mm-hmm. on on Commando and Lethal Weapon and and these kinds of bang 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 movies, with a more European aesthetic. Where McTiernan is on all over the place talking about how he um, hired Jan DeBont, who mm-hmm. had just started, you know, and goes on to become a director uh, making Speed, Speed <laughs> later on, and Frank J. Uriah. Like all these guys who are coming off of RoboCop, a a Paul Verhoeven, you know, Dutch-made American film the year before that, but it's the the collision of this sort of European aesthetic with this very American '80s kind of machismo that it's also undercutting in, right. in ways that that we've that we've talked about already. So I think that that tension is is really what you know that was the the special sauce.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes it so interesting to me every time I watch it, it might be the movie I've seen the most times, or it's up there it's, it's there up there me, with yeah. the ones that I've just watched just a ridiculous number of times. We've talked before, we talked a little bit when Alan Rickman died about the fact that Hans Gruber is such a an essential brilliant villain. Right. One of the things that makes him brilliant is he's so likable and he is so right so much of the time and he is so capable of predicting what the FBI is going to do and he has set all of this up so that The things that are going to happen, for the most part, he has anticipated other than John McClane. It is a really good plan. He had a really (laughs) good plan that probably would have worked. And so one of the things about his presence is that just like you're saying, he becomes kind of this, you know, well-dressed European who is making fun of – John McClane. And at one point, very explicitly for kind of buying into the macho American, you right. think you're just going to blow in here. I mean, that's what the yippee-ki-yay mother forker thing is <laughs> in this movie. It is. Or in the
3: original Sinatra version, bada bada bing, baby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. It comes from that debate where he's saying, you know, you saw too many.
3: American movies. American movies, yeah. Just another product of a bankrupt culture. Yeah, exactly.
1: I think it's my sister whose favorite moment in this is when the police are all, oh, we're going to get them. We've got it all figured out. And then you see the guy who's looking at the monitor saying, oh, they're coming in in standard two by two formation. And Mm -hmm. he's, you know, nothing that they're doing is nearly as hot as they think. Right. It it, it's
3: nice that Jan Debont got to come back and sort of rehabilitate the reputation of SWAT teams and speed a little <laughs> bit because the SWAT team in Die Hard is just the worst. They're they so are. Dumb. <laughs>
1: they're not good at it.
3: And the guy pricks his finger on the rose, which I always mm-hmm. I always love that shot. Right? Yeah. Ow, you know, as he's running through the bushes. Would any other 80s action star
4: have that scene? Uh, where he's literally at the breaking point. We're on the phone with Reginald Bell Johnson. Yeah. Uh, where he is... Well, I
1: can't believe we haven't talked about it yet. He's also great in this. Who,
4: mm-hmm. Where he's on the verge of tears. Is that a thing we saw before? Would Would Schwarzenegger do that? Well, would, I, I would can... Would Van Damme? Okay. Would,
3: <laughs> would Jeff Speakman? Would <laughs> Kurt Thomas? <laughs> Jeff... i <Olme> Thomas! Speakman? <laughs> no, I... I, no, I, I I actually do have something to say about this. I, I think that because the casting of Bruce Willis was such big news at the time and the fact that he got paid, you know, this then striking sum of $5 million for, to the moonlighting guy, I think the, the vulnerability aspect of this, although critical to the movie, has been overstated. I mean, we forget that Stallone cries at the very end of First Blood at the oh, beginning of the decade. Oh, in First Blood, there's a lot of uh, The year before mm-hmm. this, we're introduced to Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon weeping over the photograph of his dead wife with his gun in his mouth. I, I You know, I, I mean, the tears were... We're part of it. I think it's just the inflated Schwarzeneggerian aesthetic becomes so dominant.
1: But I will say... What Glenn is bringing up, though, might be, would the crying have been based around, I have been a bad husband? Exactly. As much as, like, she is dead, she is whatever, would it have been around, I have screwed up, and now I will not have a chance to make it right? That's important. I think the history Mm -hmm. would tell you there's some of that, Mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that makes the film interesting is that. I want to call out one thing that I very much admire about this film, which is Its relationship with profanity, which we already have mentioned the famous yippee-ki-yay line. But there are also two other lines that I absolutely love in this movie that are ones that I always pull out when somebody says, you know, profanity is never necessary, it's just lazy. And they are not necessarily the most famous swearing Mm -hmm. lines in the film. But... When he is on the roof and he is talking to the 911 yep. dispatcher and she does not understand what's going on. And she thinks he's just some dude bothering her because he's talking about people taking over an office building, which is ridiculous. And so she starts to say, sir, this is a, an emergency line only. And he says – and again, I will continue to use the <laughs> good place substitutes – he says – Uh, No forking shirt, lady. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? And it is one of my favorite lines of profanity.
2: It's also delivered and you only hear it over the phone. So you, you see her and just hear his voice. Right.
1: And the other one is in that same scene when he's talking to her and she says sir, you know, I'm going to have to report you to the police. And he says, fine, report me. Come the fork down here and arrest me. <laughs> it's, this is a great swearing movie. That would be my argument. Right.
3: No, we've talked about how that becomes his war mask, right? Because he's trying to put on this inflated persona that that could endure the things that he has he yeah. to endure. Yeah. I think it's fair to say
4: that Bruce Willis's gifts as an actor were not fully developed here. But yet, one of the things I missed seeing it in bits and pieces as an usher is the arc that he goes Mm -hmm. through. And that is important to the character. It's vital to the movie. And when he goes up and things start happening and he just goes running around going, think, 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 I'm like, oh God, we've seen this before. But for him to get to that place on that conversation with Reginald L. Johnson, even though it still seems... Mannered In a Bruce Willis way, mm-hmm. uh, kind of still mask for mask's sake. Yeah. Uh, he's still going for a place.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because when you see the end of the film and you see kind of the, the final encounter between him and Hans Gruber, which is maybe one of the things that I would call unlikely in the <laughs> extreme. The way that it plays out with Huey Lewis guy and...
3: Yeah, <laughs> guy. Eddie. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, and- I found out last night that his name is Eddie. But, yeah. Uh, the the yeah I, just think, I just think of him as <laughs>
1: Huey Lewis guy. Yep. When you see that scene play out, when Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia, who we also have not talked about... And her perm. The great Bonnie Bedelia and her perm. When she sees him and he is so beaten up by this whole thing, you can see that... Her shock at just his physical state. Mm -hmm. And I think by then you realize like, oh, yeah, his feet are all tied up in bandages. He's dirty. He's been fighting these dudes in a bunch of fights that like, to their credit, this movie has a lot of object permanence. Like, mm-hmm. fights that happen really seem like they're happening, and when he hangs a guy up by a chain, the guy is still there later. Oh, man. The <laughs> fight with um, the,
3: the great defectee ballet dancer, Alexander Gudinov.
1: Right, absolutely.
3: Can I say before we yes. go, can I say, in it, now we've talked about why this movie has endured mm-hmm. in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think it is easy to to identify why this is the consensus movie in this genre among pop culture happy hour people specifically, <laughs> Right. You get 30 seconds into the commentary track for this when McTiernan starts talking about joy. He starts talking about getting the screenplay and saying, well, this is about terrorists. You know, it's very grim. It's very dark. How can I get some joy into it? How can I make it fun? And he's, well, you know, what if they were thieves instead of terrorists? Because that's the that's related. I mean, all they're trying to do is steal. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. they're going to kill 40 people to steal all this money, yeah. but it's more like a caper and less like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some horrible dire comment on, on humanity. And, what and they're going to com- get
1: theirs anyway. Yeah,
3: if we, we compress it so it only takes place over the course of one night, like a Midsummer Night's Dream, and then we get the Beethoven in there, and, it, you know, he keeps looking for ways to inject light and yeah. buoyancy into mm-hmm. into this. So that's why, that's why I think you guys like it. Uh-huh. Well,
1: <laughs> and I will say he injects fun into it not only by making it stupid, mm-hmm. which is often how they inject joy into things like Skyscraper, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I yes. also find joy in, but only because they're stupid. And... I think that this does not inject all of its joy via stupidity. We want to know what you think about Die Hard. Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. This episode was produced and edited by Vincent Accavino and Jessica Reedy. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you all for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you tomorrow.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off.